You're listening to the Straight to Video Podcast with Rob Lane. Welcome along to the Straight to Video Podcast with me, your host, Rob Lane, and I hope you're all doing well. All right, on today's show, we're not heading back to the 80s or the 90s. We're going way, way back to the early days of rock and roll as I speak to one of its unsung pioneers, Mr. Charlie Gracie, a singer and guitarist who has influenced the likes of Paul McCartney and George Harrison, Cliff Richard, Graham Nash, Van Morrison and countless others when he arrived in the UK from Philadelphia, USA in the 1950s with huge hit singles under his belt such as Fabulous and Butterfly which sold literally millions of copies. Of course we're not talking streams here through a computer, we're talking about kids going into record shops and buying these records, millions of them. Charlie, at 85 years young, continues to perform to this day and looks forward to returning to his second home of Great Britain as soon as he can. And when he does, he'll have his new single, Can't Stop Rocking, to join him on the trip. Before we get into this talk with a real living legend, I want to shout out to the folks at Dead School Coffee for continuing to support the show. And if you like real rock and roll coffee from a truly independent business, then you need to head on over to deadschoolcoffee.co.uk and pick up some of their amazing ground or full bean coffee and you can bag yourself a great 15% off by simply adding the discount code STV on checkout. Also want to thank everyone who has checked out the new straight-to-video Halloween single, a cover of the 1986 Fastway song Trick or Treat from the horror movie of the same name. I really appreciate everyone listening and enjoying it. And if you head on over to stvpod.com, you can listen there or find the video on YouTube. And I really appreciate everyone taking the time to share it. All right, Charlie Gracie has a wonderful story, which although he often says it's no big deal, it really is. The things he's seen and done are far too big for just this little old podcast. So if you enjoy our chat, pick up his book, Rock and Roll's Hidden Giant, the story of rock pioneer Charlie Gracie, which is available now on Amazon, or deep dive more into his story over at charliegracie.com because it really is a wild ride, which I was honored to hear just a snippet of during our chat. So without further ado, please enjoy my straight-to-video talk with the wonderful Charlie Gracie. How you doing? Say, all right. For an old guy, not too bad. <laughs> You're looking very smart and dapper. Show business. <laughs> Excellent stuff. I was ready to perform. Always, always. I was born for that reason. So you're in Nottingham, Sherwood Forest, eh? That's right, yes, yeah. Whereabouts in Nottingham do you play when you come over? I've played so many places, I can't remember the names of them, but I've played Nottingham quite a few times. It's a cool city and uh, interesting fact, I'm just outside of Nottingham. There's a town which is literally three miles away from me where I know you've become good friends with Cliff Richard over the years. Oh yes, yes. What a wonderful entertainer. Yeah, and he actually got his stage name Cliff Richard in the town just up the road from really? where I live. Yeah. Oh, isn't that funny? Used to go by the name of Harry Webb, but they said it wasn't rock and roll enough, so he had to change it. <laughs> well, I, I, the name I was born was the name I'm going to die with, Charlie Gracie, that's it. There you go. It's a cool stage name. You did okay. Everybody thinks it's made up. That's my name. And many other times, like, hey, you, I answer to that too. <laughs> Great stuff. 
Well, I appreciate you taking some time to sit down with me and chat about your career. Congratulations on the latest single, Can't Stop Rocking. Thank you. You like it? It's a great tune. Really, really cool. Good, good. How is it being in the studio today? You will have seen many changes in the way songs are recorded. Well, <laughs> they used to have the two big tapes when I first started recording, you know. I'm not a technician. I don't know the names of so many things, but they were still making 78s when I began recording. A lot different now. It's all on computers and... Well, I don't think it's very sophisticated. And I'm an old-timer. I'm a dinosaur from way back. I started my recording career in 1951 and a half. I just read it to enter high school. I was a kid. And I was uh, discovered on a radio television show with a gentleman driving in from New York. His name was Graham Prince. And he owned a record company called Cadillac Records. So we didn't have a phone in the house, but the next day I got a telegram telling me that he wanted to record me. Well, I was thrilled to death, of course, you know, about 16 years old yet. Went into New York, kept my first three or four tunes. Everything turned out well. No big deal, you know. Then I left Cadillac. I went with 20th Century, which was a Philadelphia company where I was born and raised. No big deal. Finally, in 1956, this cat came over to my house and said, uh, I just borrowed $2,000 from my brother and I'm going to start a record company. I said, great, good for you. So uh, we went into the studio December of 56. I never forget, it was cold, frigid night. Went up to the second floor studio. And we cut two tunes, one called Butterfly, 199 Ways. I didn't think much of it. I thought they were good. By March of 1957, we had a number one hit. <laughs> I thought my mother was going to say, wake up, Charlie. It's time to go to school. Anyway, just imagine still wanting to record me at my age. I just turned 85 this year. I can't believe that much time has passed because I don't feel my age. Most people tell me I don't look it, which is great, because on stage you want to look like a decrepit old man, you know. <laughs> and I can still walk, I can still run, I can still drive. I, I'm happiest when I'm performing. My wife tells me, you're at your best when you're singing and playing the guitar, Charlie. So what can I say? Excellent stuff. And like I say, you, you were born in Philadelphia, where you still live today in 1936. I believe it was quite the busy household, living with both your parents and your grandparents. Yes, well, uh, I was raised in a little row house in South Philadelphia. My grandparents were immigrants from Sicily. I'm Sicilian. Both my grandparents on both sides. My mother and father were Americans born here. I'm second generation. My children are third generation. And I speak the language because grandma and my grandpa couldn't speak English just about. So when I went to school, I was bilingual. And then there's the Sicilian language. Everybody conquered Sicily, you know. There's Greek, there's Arabic, Spanish, there's French. I speak four or five languages, just enough to get by. It was a great experience, you know. But we were poor people, you know. Listen, I mean, you're going to laugh when I tell you this. Not only in our house, but thousands of us that had no bathrooms in the house. And no toilets. We had outhouses, like a farm, you know? It was tough when it's 12 degrees and you have to go to the toilet. I bet. <laughs> so, well, you know, it makes you strong. Then uh, when I was 10 years old, we moved two doors away, had a toilet, had a bathroom. We thought we died and went to heaven. That was a luxury then. Absolutely. you got to remember the times. Right in the middle of the first depression in America, of course, when the war broke out, everything started cooking. Plants were going like crazy. And, of course... When you put the Brits and the Americans together, we're unbeatable. Yes, <laughs> definitely. And it was quite a diverse neighborhood, too, with lots of different nationalities. But you were taught to treat everybody on face value to get along and just treat everyone with respect. You never had any problem. We were Italians, we were Polish, we were Jewish, we were black. Well, America is a league of nations. Nobody was really native to, except the Indians, and they got a rough deal. I'll be honest with you. You know, <laughs> you know we're, we're a mixing pot here, you know. And, uh, you know, times have changed. Things are a little different today than it was when I was a kid. But we never had any money. We were poor people. I mean, you know, I, once I asked my mother for a quarter, and she said, not this week, Charlie, I got to pay the insurance man. 
you know, I mean, things were rough when I was a kid, but we never went to bed hungry. Always had a clean home to live in, lots of love and plenty of music. Yeah, and music was something that surrounded you from early on. Your parents loved stuff such as big band and country, all different styles. Yeah, my father was a big band freak and my mother was a country freak. And I used to grow up listening to the black music. They used to call it race records at the time. And you put the three of them together, it's rock and roll, you know. There you go, there you go. How did they listen to music? Was it on records or on radio? Well, radio. Radio was king in those days, you know what I mean? We used to listen to the stories and chapters at night by radio instead of television. Then, of course, in the 50s, television became king and the radio became secondary. But, you know, radio is still a big force throughout the world because you could do something and not have to pay attention to it like television. You could clean, you could write, just listen, you know. So it's still a great medium. And uh, I mean, my God, there's always a radio going in my house ever since I've been born. Absolutely. So 10 years old, things would all change on a visit to South Street with your dad. Oh, man, I'm telling you. Well, you got a minute? <laughs> yeah, I got as long as you like. My father worked, worked in a hat factory called Stetson, John B. Stetson Hat Company, very famous company. They used to make the cowboy hats and all, you know. And one day he just took me to work with me. He said, I want you to show, show you where you're going to work if you don't learn how to play the guitar. <laughs> I took one look and I said, this is purgatory. I'm not coming to this joint. How inspirational is that, that and amazing of your dad being from such a working class background to encourage it? Because a lot of parents will be like, no, you just need to get a solid job and earn a living. I'll tell you how this got started. You heard the song South Street. Where do all the hippies meet? South Street. Now, the Eurolines who were friends of mine. They recorded on Cameo too. <laughs> what happened was when I was 10 years old, he was going to take a walk down to South Street at the time. It was a mill area, shoe shops, barbershop, clothing stores. As we're walking down the street, he'd stop and hesitate at every point. He said, you know what, Charlie, the heck with the suit. Poor guy saved up six months for a $15 suit. He said, pick an instrument out. I want you to make some of yourself. I don't want you to work like a donkey like I have all my life. I said, all right, Dad, how about a nice trumpet like Harry James was famous at the time? Nah, he said, you don't want that. You get a guitar, you'll be a one-man band. Little did he know that that was the future of music, the guitar, <laughs> you know. And that's how I got the show visit. It wasn't even my idea. It was his idea. What was the first guitar? Do you remember? It was a harmony. It bent in the middle. <laughs> it used to jump. But it was enough to get me started, you know. Then later on, I bought a nice Gibson. I paid $375 for it. It took me two years to pay for it. <laughs> Ten years old playing the guitar. That's super early. Was you known as the guitar playing kid at school? Well, I was very popular in school because I used to take it to they had the, what they call stunt nights at the high school. And I'd bring my instrument there and all the kids would always have a party at Put it on the corner of the street. When my records came out, they used to put their jukeboxes on the corner of the street and play Charlie Gracie records all day. Great time to be alive as a young teenager, you know. We didn't have any of this dope and crap that's going on in the world. We were just simple kids. If you smoked a cigarette and maybe had a beer once in a while. Today, I mean, it's a whole different world. And by the time I was 15, 15 and a half, I was an accomplished musician, but fairly accomplished. I could play with anybody. I had a good talent for the instrument. You know, it came to me. I had a great teacher, by the way. So when I went into the studio in 1952, late 50s, I was just ready to go into high school. And uh, I went and cut my first two or three records in New York. Well, my God, just going to New York in itself was a big deal. We're only 100 miles away from New York an hour and a half drive. And uh, cut a long story short, I recorded with Cadillac Records and I recorded with 20th Century. Then finally in 56, a thing called Cameo Records was born, which was one of the hottest companies for five or six years in America. Many artists followed me that had hit after hit after hit. We sold a couple of three million copies and just said that one record. And I had other top 10 records, but I had more top 10 records in Britain than I had in America. So as time went by, 
my agent called me one day, said, Charlie, we got an offer to go to England. I said, you, you got to be kidding me, man. Wow, I read about you guys in the history books when I was a kid. The history you have, you know, our history is 200 years. Your history is 2,000 years old. So I got booked in Britain. I did the Ed Sullivan show here. I did the Paramount Theater with Alan Free. All us rock and rollers would play together. Me, Chuck Berry, the Everly Brothers, Eddie Cochran. All in one bill for two bucks. Wow. Yeah, but we didn't make a lot of money in those days. Like today, they play one place at home at $40,000. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I land in England. I came over on the Mauritania by ship. That's probably been in mothballs for 50 years now. <laughs> Where did you dock into? Do you remember? Was it Liverpool? Southampton. Oh, Southampton, right. Yes, yes. Played Liverpool, of course, 57, 58. That's where Paul McCartney came to see me, along with the Stones and Van Morrison. And they were four or five years younger than me. So when I, when I came to Britain, without sounding egotistical, I was a toast of the town. I was a solo artist with a guitar. Bill Haley preceded me with his band, but I didn't have a band. So I was at the mercy of the pit orchestra, which is tough to play rock and roll. Every show was jammed. Well, was a variety in those days. You still had singing, dances, dog acts, and I was closed the show. And there was a young lady there, Dorothy Squires, big star in England at the time, right? So they gave me top billing because I was hot at the time. And she quit the show. She said, who was this upstart coming from America taking top billing over somebody? Like me? I never heard of her. I don't know who she was. I mean, it made me even more famous at the time from the publicity. Open the show, close the show, play in the men's room. I don't care. I'm just happy to be coming over there. And we met for a few moments as the weeks went by. She was married to Roger Moore at the time, the movie star. And, and I started my tour, and the places were packed. I mean, the kids, they couldn't wait for me to come on. I was a closing act. I was screaming and hollering. I said, what are, you, what are you crazy these people? <laughs> I never thought anybody thought that much of me. But anyway, the tour went well. I went back the following year. My wife and, and I, Joan, married. We spent a honeymoon in Britain, another 10-week tour. So the years went by, and I, I must have played Britain about 40 times already in my life. It's like my second home. And you people are the best in the world. There are 14, 15 countries that are all great including Yanks, but there's something about a British audience that nobody can top. You guys are dynamite. I mean, it. and I made so many friends in my tours that, I mean, my friends come to see me and some of them come in with walkers now. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> well, you know, they've been fans for 50 years. <laughs> well, so far, I don't need one of those. I'm okay. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I say, are you people sick of listening to me? No, we love you, Charlie. We love you, you know. What a great feeling it makes. Don't forget, I'm a stranger in your country. I'm a, you know what I mean? I'm an immigrant. <laughs> People love me, and I want you to know that I love them too. We spoke a little bit about all the different stuff you've recorded, but um, when you recorded Butterfly, that was originally going to be the B-side, right? And it was you said, no, this needs to be the A-side. Well, yeah, we had a little dispute about that, but I'm glad I won because that was one of the biggest selling records of its time, but we had about 10 or 12 cover records on it. Andy Williams and, and Britain, um, Tommy Steele. I knew Tommy well. Great kid, by the way. Now, he went on to become super in his trade. You know, he's a song and dance man, right? And Petula Clark, I was on the 6 Five Special with Petula Clark before she became universally famous. And I played the Palladium there. And you know who was my guest star? Shirley Bassey. Wow. She was my supporting act. I gave everybody a stepping stone. They, they all passed me. I mean, I did the 6 5 special. It was a big show at the time when I was a kid. You weren't even born then. So many experiences I've had, you can't ex describe them how to live it. You know what I'm saying? Definitely, definitely. And I've played 10,000 performances in my life. And every time I get on the stage, it's like my first performance. It's fresh. I mean, I, I, so it's always fresh. I was born to perform, I guess. It's all I know how to do. Didn't your grandfather say that about you when he first saw you as a baby? Well, that's what I was told. And he said to my father, 
I see a star over this kid. God knows who knows it. Every grandfather says the same thing about their grandchildren. But you know what? It came to fruition. Of course, I didn't become Paul McCartney or some of the bigger names. But at the time, I was as hot as anybody. Knocked up and sat in the box for a couple of weeks. Elvis, got to be kidding me, right? And I thought it was a dream. I thought my mother was going to say, get up, Charlie, it's time to go to school. You know, a dream came true. And I made enough money to get my family out of the ghetto into the nice home. At least I accomplished that much. But then with the record company, nobody wants to pay it. Even to the same story, you know what I mean? So we settled out of court and I settled for X amount of dollars enough to get out of out of the hellhole, right? Cut a long story short, the guy that I recorded for was partners with Dick Clark, who had American Bandstand at the time. Well, I was on Bandstand before Dick Clark had it. The original guy got the jackpot, and he was in a little studio making $100 a week, and he fell right into this good-looking guy with a great voice. So when I went to sue the company, Cameo, unbeknownst to me, I'm suing him too, because he's a partner. <laughs> what do I know? I'm a little kid from South Philadelphia. I don't even think about that, right? And I never got on the show again. My career skyrocketed and plummeted like that fast. Everything's kind of interconnected and linked with it. And You're right, Robbie. And my popularity dwindled. But I always had England. Yeah, you had that base. You had that core audience. That was my salvation, you know? And I didn't go back there for many years. But in 1979, some young fellow from Canada put out all my old records from Cadillac and 20th Century. And I didn't realize so I still had a hardcore following there. And I started touring all over again. I've been touring ever since. But listen, let me tell you something. I've had a great life. I just turned 85, as you know, this year. I never, I never thought I'd live that long, rather. And I'm still vibrant. I could still run. I could still walk. I could still perform. I don't have any senility yet. So I've been very fortunate in my life. I have two wonderful children. My wife and I have been married for 63 years. Incredible. Joan and I spent our honeymoon there in 1958. And uh, she was never out of Philadelphia. When she won that toy, she was in awe of everything. We flew over with Pat Boone and his wife. But you got to remember, they didn't have jets in those days. It was mm, with the propeller. It took 14 hours to get there. You know, I have a book out, by the way, so at Amazon.com. And uh, my whole, I mean, I, I could talk to you for days because there's so much to tell. And sometimes I forget. You'd be surprised, you know, years go by. But uh, all in all, I still have my senility. I can commute with anybody. I mean, I'm still performing. I can still play. I mean, what more can you ask for in life? I had a great life and a great career. Of course, I never became the superstar like an Elvis or the Beatles. Or, but I had my 15 minutes of fame. And over the years, unbeknownst to me, when I first came to Britain, in my audiences were the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Graham Nash, Joe Cocker. All these people, they were four or five years younger than me, came to see me. And evidently, they told me I inspired them to play rock and roll. My father was making $75 a week. I was making $1,000 a night. But of course, today, they play stadiums with like 14,000, 15,000 people. They go home in one night, but it took me a whole year to make. You know, time's changing. One guy said to me, I'd like to be as strong as an oak tree. I said, now you're better off being a palm tree because it sways in the wind. The oak will fall. And that's how I've survived. I still do 20, 25 dates a year, and I still travel to Europe, and I have my own little band, and we work throughout the area, two, three, 500 miles. So we're still active. I'm not a dead float in the water. And just to be alive at my age, still being able to perform, that's a miracle in itself. You mentioned you inspired all these musicians. You've been considered one of the original rock and roll guys. Who was inspiring you? You got to remember, when I started playing the guitar, there was no rock and roll. Matter of fact, I was playing it before they even coined the phrase rock and roll with the combination of swing, country, black music, race, these called race records in those days. A combination of it, that's where even Elvis said the same thing. That music came from that core. My goodness, I mean, I had nobody to emulate. 
there was a guy that did all the lead work on Bill Haley's record, early guitar work. He was excellent. His name was Danny Cedrone, a fellow South Philadelphian. Unfortunately, he fell down the steps and got killed. He was 33 years old. But I would listen to him. Whatever he picked came out. And that's the way I was supposed to play. Now, today with all the modern stuff, I mean, you press a button, it sounds like thunder. But And that's, how, that's one guy that I tried to emulate. And unfortunately, he died young. And all I have is a couple of three, four records that he played on. He was excellent. Don't forget, there was no TV at the time when I was a kid. So all we had was radio to listen to. And once the song was over, there was no way to repeat it like today. You press the button, it plays, you know. Exactly. You had to wait another three or four hours before that song came back on. And of course, uh, TV came in. It changed the whole world. I mean, one spot on the television show, you played to 50 million people. Exactly. How was it for you the first time you got to perform on TV? Well, I had done some local stuff, you know, as a kid. But when I was asked to do the Ed Sullivan show, that was the pinnacle of show business at that time. I mean, I was on with people. They used to pay 10 cents in the movie to see like Henry Fonda, Donna Michi, Will Chamberlain, the great basketball star from Philadelphia. I mean, I used to watch these guys on TV and I'm on the show with them. You know, I can't believe it. So I did a show that night. I was really nervous, to tell you the truth. The guy said, don't you go out there, you'll kill him, kid, you know, live. So the next day I went to see my grandma. And she was an immigrant. She just about spoke English, but I spoke Sicilian. You know? Grandma, man. And the first thing she said to me at the time was, don't get a big head. <laughs> well, that put me right in my socks. <laughs> she was right. But I never had a big head. I was always grateful for the things that came my way in life. It's not been easy. It's been up and down. It's been a rough road. I've been through a lot of stuff in my life, but you know what? I come out smelling like a rose. So just to be alive at my age is a miracle in my book. Listen, what can I say? I've had a great career, but you know what? When I'm on stage again, it's like working with my peers. I'm like 19, 20 years old again. I see the Everly Brothers, Eddie Cochran, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley. We all work together as kids. Where would you guys meet? Was you on like package tours, like a traveling tour, or would it be different acts each night? We did book in different theaters. Like for instance, if we did the Alan Freed show, we all worked at Paramount, New York, so for a week or 10 days. So we were together for 10 days, five, six shows a day. <laughs> you know, Everybody didn't do it, maybe three or four numbers. That was it because we didn't have time. And then in Chicago, the same thing. In Washington, the same thing. But uh, when, of course, when I came to England, I had to do a regular half-hour spot. And if you, if you didn't finish the half-hour, the curtain came down on you. <laughs> it was tough. And you got to remember, I sang through the mic that came through the stage. You know what it comes up? Yeah, yeah. No monitors. You couldn't hear yourself sing. And the band is in the pit. That's a tough way to play rock. It's a good thing I played the guitar. Yeah. I had to bring my own amplifier from America. They didn't even have one for me to play through. How did they do with the electricity? Well, they had to convert them. They changed from 110 to 220. Okay. I it, was, it was a riot. It was a riot, man. And like you say, playing in the UK, you become an influence to all these younger musicians, but you make longtime friends. It's wonderful yes. to know that these friendships are still there today. I think that's one of the most important important gifts that music and particularly touring allows musicians. Well, I've been, I've been so fortunate that way. See, when I was at the top, these guys were three, four, five years younger than me. I didn't know who they were. They didn't know who they were. They became famous later in the 60s. But evidently, they came to see me play. And then Paul McCartney, in the title of my book, even wrote the foreword there, saying if it wasn't for guys like Charlie Grayson, we'd never heard of the Beatles and so on. So, I mean, what a, what a wonderful testament to somebody like me who never really reached the you know, the peak that they did, they made millions of dollars. I, I'd have to have 10 lifetimes to make that kind of money. You know what I mean? But just the tribute that they paid to me. My God, Paul sent me a singing at uh, happy birthday on my 80th birthday. <laughs> you imagine that? You took the time out to sing happy birthday to Charlie. What a great guy. I've been in this company twice. It's a wonderful man and a talent. What a talent. I mean, my God, these guys, I mean, you got to remember I'm from the stone age. 
<laughs> you know, just to be able to write a couple of them rock and roll tunes was difficult because, like you said, there was nobody to copy. You know, it was tough. But hey, listen, I mean, I got a book out too, by the way. I, I mentioned it's available on Amazon.com. Just Charlie Gracie, you know, no big deal. Just a big deal, sir. Well, that to me is, <laughs> listen, I never had an ego problem. I know who I am. I know where I was born and raised at. We're poor people. My grandparents were immigrants. My grandfather died going to work, had a heart attack. You know, poor guy. He never seen any of my success. But my grandmother did, and she told me, don't get a big head. <laughs> did your dad get to share in much of your success? Because he was the one who encouraged it. Well, he, he had talent, my father, but never had the opportunity to express it because being born even before me, there was no money in the house. So if he wanted to play the guitar, harmonica, tap dance, which he did, his father said, go to work. We need that $5 a week and make, you know what I mean? So he lives his life through his first son. I have two younger brothers. And uh, it's always a happy household where I came from. Music up the wazoo, you know, music, music, music. Till this day, my head bursts with things that I want to do and I still haven't done yet. What are some of the things you consider like the real success of your career? Is it getting to see the world? And like we mentioned, the friendships and the stories you get? Well, that's basically that's, that's basically it because that's, I've been a performer since I never had any other job. I meet people that don't know me. What, who are you? What do you do? I say, well, that's who I am is not important. I, say, I sing and I play the guitar. And then they read about me. Why didn't you say you were I can't walk around with a sign. <laughs> you find that yourself. Hey, listen, let me tell you something. When I first came to Britain, I bought a map, a British map. And every time I play a gig, I put a, an ink dot. The whole thing's one big blot of ink now. Oh, brilliant. I don't think I miss many spots in Britain. Playing. Oh, that's amazing. What was your preconceived idea of England before you first came over? No, I mean, I read about you guys in the books, in the history books. You got to remember, I was born during World War II. I remember World War II, like Winston Churchill has been one of my heroes all my life. Him and Roosevelt, what a team they made, those two guys. Thank God for them. But you got to remember, the Brits fought the Germans alone for two years before we got into it. So you guys are tough. You guys are tough. My uncle would love you saying that. <laughs> you know what? I only tell the truth. And that's the truth. Alone. I don't know why he didn't invade you people. It's the biggest mistake he ever made. But you got to remember, they were a powerful country. Britain wasn't even ready for war. But you held them off until we got into it. Then once we got together, it was done. Obviously, still live in Philadelphia. How has the city changed? Is there anywhere in particular that is still around that still evokes good memories? Well, I, I live about 10 miles out of town. You know, it's a big, vibrant city. But there's a lot of things going on in America that I'm not too crazy about. A lot of crime right now. Drugs are big, but it's all over the world. It's taken over the world. Unfortunately, a lot of young kids die every day from that stuff, and it breaks my heart. I mean, life is short, even if you live to be 100, and they're in a cemetery at 12, 24, 18, 26. What a waste. What a waste. You know what I mean? What a waste. Heartbreaking. But you got to remember, it's the birthplace of freedom. The Liberty Bell, the Congressional Hall, it all started here with Washington, Jefferson, you know, Ben Franklin, all those guys, you know. And uh, well, you're born and raised in that. You don't really appreciate it until I come to a country like yours and I appreciate your history. You see what I mean? It's always greener on the other side. Do you know um, what shop is standing in South Street where you brought your first guitar from? What's there now? Do you know? Well, most of it has changed, of course. You go, I'm going back like 70 years now. It's a high energy area where there's a lot of clubs and young kids, trendy shops and stuff like that. Yeah, it's beyond me now. I'm really too old for that. But hey, listen, I can appreciate every age because I was there once and I know what it's like to be 18 and 17 and 25. But it was a different time for us. You know, we didn't have a lot of money in our pockets like today. These kids, they start out at $60,000 a year on a job. Years ago, you made it like 75 cents an hour when I was a kid. 
So it's a different world. But you know what? Whatever world you're in at the time, you got to play that game. Otherwise, forget about it. Charlie, thank you ever so much for taking some time to chat with us. I really appreciate oh, it. Thanks for having me on your show. Are you kidding me? Remember, I can't stop rocking. I love you all. My love to all my British friends out there. I, I really love you all so, so much. Thank you. Come on over here. I got a story to tell. When I'm doing my thing, it's like a ring and a bell. Thank you so much to Charlie Gracie for sharing some of his time and amazing stories with me here on the Straight to Video podcast. I hope you enjoyed learning about him and the influence he has had on some of the world's most successful musicians. And please visit charliegracie.com to learn even more or maybe pick up his book, Rock and Roll's Hidden Giant, the story of rock pioneer Charlie Gracie, which is available now on Amazon. I have over 100 episodes of this show streaming along with some straight to video merch and the latest Halloween single Trick or Treat over at stvpod.com. And if you enjoy all of that and want to support the show a little bit more, then please consider checking out all the perks available at patreon.com forward slash stvpod, where you can get behind the scenes access, a private Facebook group, a bonus podcast and exclusive merch. I'd love to have you on board, so please, if you can, take a look. That's all for today's show. I hope you enjoyed the talk. And as always, I can't wait to share some more chats with you all real soon. 